Welcome to the COVID What Comes Next podcast with Dr. Ashish Jha, Dean of the Brown University School of Public Health and a globally respected pandemic scientist and physician. Every week here, Dr. Jha will analyze events of the previous several days and offer his assessment and guidance for what lies ahead. I'm your host, G. Wayne Miller of the Providence Journal and the USA Today Network. Ashish, how are you today? Good morning, Wayne. I'm well. How are you? I'm good, thanks. So we have uh, we have a couple of audience questions and a, a couple that I want to put directly to you. Yeah. And I, I guess the big news is the J and J vaccine, um, yeah. which, which is being we've got emergency use authorization and is being shipped as I understand even uh, as we speak today. Yeah. So maybe you can just break down. With the advantages, the disadvantages, uh, not only for the United States, but globally. Sure. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about the technology behind the J&J vaccine uh, and why I think it's a really good vaccine, why I would take it, uh, why I would have family members take it. So it's, um, it's an adenovirus vaccine. So basically adenoviruses are these very common viruses uh, and they are um, basically what the vaccine does is it takes part of that spike protein of this of, of the coronavirus that we care about that we want to build immunity against puts it into this adenovirus the adenovirus doesn't really cause us any harm uh but it uh, it infects some of our cells and and generates the protein that leads to a really good immune response it sounds all a little bit crazy and technical but the point is this is a very well established vaccine platform as opposed to moderna and pfizer which are relatively relatively new approaches to building vaccines. The J&J is tried and true, has worked for lots of other vaccines, this platform. And so in that way, it's great. One of the things it does very, very well is it really generates a very robust T-cell response. So there are two arms of the immune system, the antibodies and your T-cells. And these, uh, uh, these vaccines really generate a very, very robust T-cell response. Um, uh, so all of that is a way to say, when you look at the data on, on J&J, it looks really good across the board. It's been tested against the South Africa variant. It's been tested against the Brazil variant. Uh, Moderna and Pfizer weren't, by the way, not in their clinical trials. And it, and it seems to hold up really well in preventing hospitalizations and deaths against those variants. So given all of that, the FDA authorized uh, emergency use on Saturday uh, the CDC came out uh, yesterday and made some recommendations about how it should be uh, widely distributed and used. And starting this week, we're going to start seeing it going into people's arms. It can be refrigerated, does not even need to be frozen, let alone that super ultra gold. And it's one shot. Uh, so you can imagine all the advantages for people who don't want to have to come back for a second shot, for places that are hard to take frozen stuff to. Uh, it's great for the U.S. It's great for the globe. And we just got to make lots of it so that we can uh, get it out to lots of people. Thank you. Uh, maybe we do this pretty much every week. Just give a brief overview of where we stand now on the 2nd of March. Yeah. Well, um, you know, until a week or 10 days ago, Wayne, things looked like they were just coming down, coming down, coming down. Every day, every week when you and I would meet we could, in the last six weeks, I could say infections are down again or from the week before. I can't say that this week. Uh, infections have really plateaued at a pretty high level, around 65, 70,000 infections a day. 
just to give people perspective, that's as bad as it got during the summer surge. If you remember the summer surge where things got really bad in the Southwest and West and South, we're at that level right now. And it has plateaued. And this is worrisome because those variants are still starting to crop up and get more and more common. You do not want to have variants becoming dominant with this level of infection. So my hope had been that we'd drive infections lower. And it's now making me concerned about what the next few weeks, next month or so may bring. Um, So that's kind of the state of things. Uh, They haven't gotten worse yet, but they have stopped getting better. And that's concerning to me. Um, vaccines are cooking. Like they're, we're getting them out. People are getting them into people's arms. And I remain very optimistic that the rest of March will see more and more vaccinations and vaccinations ramping up and continuing to ramp up. So that's the good news. But I'm worried about where we are with infections. Why, is, uh, why have, have infections plateaued? What are the factors that, as you see it, we don't know for sure, certainly. Um, I think one is that we saw such precipitous drops and uh, that my sense is people may have relaxed things a bit. Uh, you, we certainly hear states starting to open up and saying, okay, we're going to open up restaurants and, and bars. I think that's a terrible mistake right now. That is not by any stretch what any state should be considering. Relaxing things just before we get walloped by these uh, variants is a very bad idea, but I do think that's starting to happen. A little bit of relaxation of, um, of, uh, of the restrictions. And then some of it may also be a little bit of an artifact of data in the sense that uh, we saw um, a dip in cases and deaths during the big storms from a couple of weeks ago. And then last week they kind of caught up a bit. So I don't know how much of a plateau it is. I do think that things have clearly stopped getting better but uh, some of this may, may also be uh, some data issues. So why do some people have a strong reaction to the second dose of Moderna and Pfizer and some people do not? Is there an answer so, to that? Yeah, so the big thing I would say is people should not use that as a sign uh, that the vaccine worked for them or not. So personal level, I got my second shot of Moderna last week. And I had what I would say is not a significant, like a horrible reaction by any stretch. But I'll tell you, my arm was, of course, sore for a couple of days. I expected that. But I was also like super tired for about 24 hours in a way that I'm not usually. And just felt a little bit off. And then by 24 hours, I was feeling totally back to normal. Um, But some people have much more significant reactions. There are people who are essentially in bed. It's a small minority. And then there are other people who barely feel it at all. The immune system is a very funny thing. And we have seen no evidence that if you have a more a stronger reaction, somehow you're better protected than if you have no reaction at all. Um, so it's just about how your immune system reacts to the second dose, and it's pretty variable. So if you have no or little reaction, it's not a cause for worry. You don't have to think maybe they gave me the wrong thing or not at all. <laughs> okay. Not at all. No, in the clinical trials, um, eighty some odd percent of people had like a little bit of a sore arm. You'd expect that. Uh, but significant reactions, only about 25, 30% people had. So majority had only mild reactions. Okay, thank you. So uh, this is kind of a, I don't want to say a bizarre question, but it, it occurred to me, what mistakes happen. So let's say you get a first dose of Pfizer and mistakenly get the second Moderna. Is there anything to worry about there? And I'm, I'm assuming this would be very rare, but mistakes do happen. 
Yeah, it, it should be rare. Uh, you shouldn't, we shouldn't seek that out. Meaning, uh, you know, we shouldn't take a strategy of, Oh, it doesn't matter. It does matter. You should get the same one. Cause that's where the evidence is, but I wouldn't worry excessively Wayne. Like if, if a family member of mine called me and said, Hey, I got the Pfizer initially. And then by mistake, I got Moderna. Am I, am I, you know, hosed? Am I in trouble? No, uh, you should still get, um, you should still get a comparable level of benefit. It's just that I have less confidence in that statement because we don't know. We've never tested it. Uh, but everything we know on immunology, it should still generate quite a good response. Thank you. So a couple of audience questions. I'm going to read the first one verbatim. I keep seeing vaccines efficacy stated in terms of whether they prevent, quote, moderate symptoms, quote, severe symptoms, and sometimes, quote, moderate, severe together. Then separately, I hear that they prevent most hospitalizations and virtually all deaths. So is severe COVID-19 like a bad flu? In my mind, severe means you go to the hospital, but it sounds like maybe that's not the case. Any clarification would really help. Any other clarifier? So, yeah. Yeah, I wish we had been more consistent with this terminology. So first of all, moderate and severe are even used differently in different clinical trials. Uh, so that's a little frustrating. What counts as moderate in one, maybe a severe in, in another different uh, tr uh, drug trial or vaccine trial. So there hasn't been total consistency. You know, severe uh, includes things like your heart rate over 125 uh, or your oxygen level below 93%. Those may land you in an emergency room, but you can easily imagine someone can easily turn around from that and not get hospitalized and go home. And that happened happened with Moderna, uh, where one person had a severe uh, infection in the, in the vaccine arm, but they were never hospitalized. And uh, that has also happened with J&J. You know, so is, should it be called severe? Shouldn't it be called moderate? I don't know. Like, that's what they called it. What I try to look at is the underlying data and say, what actually happened to people? And the good news is that once the vaccines have had a chance to work, you really don't see... Uh, anybody getting hospitalized. I mean, there's a little debate of, I mean, was there one person in the Moderna trial who might've been hospitalized from COVID? And the way I look at it is, we've now tested this in hundreds of thousands of people in clinical trials. If we're arguing about one person maybe was hospitalized, we're doing pretty darn well. So it's zero, one or two is kind of where we are on this. And it is actually an important reminder though. Once we now get it into tens of millions of people, we will see somebody who's been vaccinated still get infected. I suspect we'll still see someone get infected and even die. These vaccines are incredible. They're close to 100%, but nothing in life is 100%, right? The polio vaccine wasn't 100%. So when, once you give it to hundreds of millions of people, once in a million reactions, once in a million failures still ends up showing up in the news. So you'll see news stories of one or two people here or there. It's just a reminder of, of how incredible these vaccines are, but they're not 100% perfect. And obviously it's not something that should motivate people not to get vaccinated, the, the one in a million case. I mean, that, that's no, just- I mean, what, <laughs> the way I look at it is, you know, if, if, uh, if the vaccine can reduce your chances of dying below your chances of getting hit by a lightning, yeah, it's not zero. But what are we talking about here? Like, you know, Whereas the alternative is what well, we've seen, 500,000 Americans uh, dead from this virus. So um, it's, it's, these are incredibly, incredibly good. 
uh, you know, no one, no one says, Hey, I'm not going to wear a seatbelt in a car because seatbelts are not a hundred percent protective in an accident. No, they're not, but they sure help a lot. And you should do it. Oh, that's a good perspective. Thank you. So I'm going to abbreviate the next audience question because it was quite lengthy. And, uh, so here we go. Are these the metrics that should be used as a guide for return to normality? Number one, daily new cases per 100,000. Two, rate of transmission. And three, percent positive from COVID testing. Uh, are those the ones we should be looking at? So those are really good measures. Um, also, I look at number of new hospitalizations and number of new deaths. But they really just follow infections and, and percent positives. Um, the way I think about it is uh, the, those metrics that we just laid out are the metrics of community transmission that should factor into your decision of what you do. So when we say normality, what do you mean? Like I have not had, I have not sat down with a friend uh, or a family outside of my, you know, my immediate family for an indoor dinner for a year, right? When would I be comfortable doing that? I might look at some of those community transmission numbers, but for me, the biggest thing if I'm doing a private event is I'm going to know, am I vaccinated, which I am now, but is the person I'm having dinner with vaccinated? Once both of us are vaccinated, I'm going to feel pretty comfortable, whatever, almost whatever the community transmission. So when we look at those community transmission metrics, and those are good ones, those should guide things like opening up restaurants and bars, uh, indoor uh, gatherings of other kinds. Those are going to be important. But I would also look at what proportion of the community has been vaccinated. And that's, of course... Uh, going to be a very important measure as well. Thank you. Uh, as always, if you have a question for Dr. Jar, write to gwmiller at providencejournal.com and write question for Dr. Jar in the subject field. Ashish, thank you. Uh, I always look forward to these Tuesdays. We learn a lot and have a great day. Wayne, as always a pleasure. Be well, stay safe, and I look forward to connecting up again next Tuesday. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.